Welcome, everyone, to this episode of This One Time at OU. Happy uh, for this episode to have Tom O'Grady on. Uh, Tom is part of the Southeast Ohio Historical Society. And welcome, Tom. Good day. How are you? Great. And Tom, excited to have you on the show because you are the, uh, as far as I can tell, the, the leading history expert in the area. Well, how about enthusiast? Okay. How about expertise there. I always like to quote Carl Sandberg when I hear about experts. He says, an expert ain't nothing but a damn fool a long way from home. So <laughs> I'm very careful about my my level of uh, you know capacity here. Pretty exciting history, and um, I'm happy to share as much as I can. And sometimes I get it wrong, and I, I I'm always happy when somebody in my audience corrects me on it, so I can not continue just you know telling lies about things. I mean, much of what historians do to, nowadays is they're we're rewriting American history because a lot of the history that was passed down to us was um, obviously edited by the, uh, as they say, the history is written by the victors. Well, <laughs> they're going to tell their story and eventually the historians get around to it and they correct it. That's, that's for sure. And I would say at least you're the, the most knowledgeable person I know about the history. And when we talk about history, um, of course, Athens, founded in 1804, was the first university, was it east of the Mississippi? Excuse me, west of the Mississippi? Is that the claim to fame, or what else significance well, is 1804? Well, sort of. They claim, uh, they claim it's the first uh, university west of the Alleghenies. And so... And what they were hoping to establish was what they called the American Western University. And uh, in 1804, they, they finally did get that established here in Athens, and it took on the name Ohio University. But it came with, uh, you know, it didn't come by itself. The folks who uh, started that, that would have been uh, a fellow named Manasseh Cutler, He's over in Ipswich, Massachusetts, and with the ordinance of 1787, he managed to pull some. He was a he was a minister or preacher of some sort, and uh, he managed to pull some of the the strings with some of the politicians over there, and, and managed to put together a group called the Ohio Company, and they purchased this sector of the state of well, it wasn't even a state of Ohio, it was this this sector of the Ohio country at the time. And uh, they came over here in 1788, and uh, they came down the Ohio River, and they landed at um, the mouth of the Muskingum River. And that was in April 1788, and they founded uh, the city of Marietta, first organized settlement in what became Ohio. And uh, eventually, that and that was in 1788, so it took them a while to to get over here and establish the uh, university, but it was the same folks, the same folks. I read the, the David McCulloch book, Pioneers, and what I my takeaway was, hey, the, the war's ended, and we have a lot of soldiers that are owed back pay, and was there a, a, a true drive to say, hey, move west, and was this part of that mo movement? Uh, I think that was a little bit different. So the war ended in... Uh, 
early 1780s, and that's when they began subdividing the state of Ohio. And, uh, you know, the first settlement came with the Ohio Company purchase, and they bought quite a bit of land, but they only settled Marietta and started working their way over toward the Hocking River, where they eventually settled Athens. But uh, they were divvying up Ohio, the north northern part of Ohio became the uh, Connecticut Western Reserve and the area between uh, the Scioto River and the, the Miami Rivers was known as the Virginia Military District. And then there were other sectors set aside for, uh, there was a refugee track for refugees from the um, Revolutionary War. There was a place up along the lake called the Firelands and that was set aside for folks who got burned out in the revolution up I think in Connecticut. Then there were a lot of sections called Congress lands, and there were sections called military uh, districts. And I think the military districts is what they set aside to award uh, land grants to veterans of the Revolutionary War. Okay. And then that, the, Congress, the Congress lands were lands that Congress was going to sell so that they could raise money and, and uh, get the state occupied. Oh, that makes that makes more sense that not everyone was, was part of the movement post-war. Now, you mentioned Marietta, and from what I recall in reading the book, that that was the first, you know, big, big trading spot. And Campus Martius, was that what Marietta was previously called, or is that something different? No, let's see. I think it was previously called Adelphi or Adelphia, and that meant um, brothers or something like that, but then it it quickly got um, named for Marie Antoinette. That's where Marietta comes from. But Campus Martius uh, was the stockade, so to speak, that they built a palisaded uh, area where they built their houses and all their operations inside this palisade structure so that they had protection from Native Americans because there'd been hostilities over here uh, Indian Wars, et cetera. And so it wasn't necessarily that safe just to come over here and build a cabin and, and move in and start chopping trees and, and growing corn. So they started out with Campus Martius, and that means Field of Mars. And Mars, of course, is the god of war. And so this was all associated with, you know, protection from conflict and, and um, military kind of things. And across the river, on the what's called Fort Harmer side today, they had a, another previously built fort, and that was to protect. That was, I believe, to um, protect these lands from squatters. People were already coming across the river and, you know, claiming certain areas and and squatting. And so there had been a couple forts. There was one up at Steubenville called. Of course, there was no Steubenville, but it was called Fort Steuben named after Baron von Steuben, a uh, Revolutionary War, I believe he's a general. And uh, that was to protect surveyors. So they were, you know, this was a big um, initiative by folks out east. They were going to survey these Ohio lands and start divvying them up and selling them and granting, you know, land grants to veterans and, and basically occupying this uh, formerly Native American territory. Now, who owned it? Well, I guess who ran it locally? Now, we have, you mentioned Manassas Cutler out of Massachusetts, forms Ohio Company, and, and then I'm sure he got 
I assume he got federal okay, but there is no state of Ohio. There's probably no state of Pennsylvania at that time. So, you know, you went into this land. If there was a squatter, who did they go and say, my land? No, it says here, this is my land. Did they just duke it out there or was there? Well, they, they raised some money. They raised quite a bit of money and they purchased the land from the federal government. And uh, then they came here and settled it. I don't believe Manasseh made the came on the first expedition down the Ohio River on the, the Adventure Galley, but some of his people did. Rufus Putnam, most specifically, was, uh, and he was a general in the Revolutionary War, New Washington and all those guys. And so Putnam was, a, was one of the big key players that, that came in on that first group. But there were a number of other, other fellows. Um, Let's see if I can remember some of the name. There was a Tupper, Benjamin Tupper, and some other folks. Um, the name guy named James Kilborn, who made one of the early maps of this region of the country. And uh, uh, some of the names are skipping me. Right well, but there's the, the point is, I guess that there there was no local authority really. It was all federal driven. No, and and, and they were met by Native Americans uh, on the shore, and I. I believe they got along okay for starters. Um, there was in 1790, I believe, uh, up river on the uh, Muskingum at a place called uh, Big Bottom. Uh, some of the settlers had moved up there and built a, a block house. And I don't know if it was Christmas Eve or one of the holiday evenings there. And I don't know, they dropped their guard left left the doors open or whatever and uh, they were attacked and there was um, several of them were, were, were killed so there were still hostilities out here on the frontier this was basically frontier and uh, you know Kentucky had been somewhat settled and certainly Virginia had been but um, this was this was the new authorized business of settling the state of Ohio or settling Ohio and it was well over a decade before it was a state. Got it. Uh, thanks. And I, I, um, I looked at, I guess, looking back to that book again, just the, um, just the hardships that uh, people, you know, taking your family across country in a motor home is a challenge now, but what if there was no roads and you had to just eat and build along the way? So pretty impressive. Now, if I remember correctly, they also said, as we settle, we're going to settle, not haphazardly. We're going to make, areas into schools churches um you know where you would live and they also said if this is a large enough area we're going to put an institute of higher learning did i did i remember that correctly and that's kind of why they you know well, that, made, made a was, university there that was partly their mission to come over here and, and do build that um university you know that the ordinance of 1787 i think the thing that drew mccullough's interest in, in doing the book because he was called over here, I don't know, 10 or 20 years ago to give a talk at one of the commencements at Ohio University. And so he didn't know much about it. So he had to do a little research to, to give his talk. And that's when he found out some of the history of it. And he, he first found that, you know, this place was organized based on a number of things. One was religious freedom and morality. One was, uh, education and the other was no slavery 
And to him, that was impressive because, you know, it was the first society, you might say, that was going to be organized from the outset based on the abolition of slavery. Other places had slavery and they abolished it. This was going to not allow it right from the, from the outset. Yeah, that's a great point. I remember that. And that kind of struck me as like, I, I, you know, not being a huge history buff, I thought, like you said, that every place had slavery, slavery at the end of the 1700s and not at all. And this was, they made a very noble effort to, you know, exclude that from their, their settlements. And I, think and, they, even, and I think even at that early time, slavery wasn't just confined to Southern states in the 1780s. I believe several, several Northern states um, had slavery. Uh, yeah, some think, of them probably were getting underway and, and getting ready to abolish it, or maybe a few had already, but, but that's why it was significant that Ohio was, was starting that way. And I think McCullough said, you know, what got his attention is that's the first society in the history of the world that started out with those high principles. Yeah, and that's a great point because I think uh, they probably I think if they if I remember correctly that they met with some opposition when they you know the Ohio company did because not everyone thought that was the best best way to go about things. Well, so, it's an interesting thing. There's um so Ohio didn't become a state until 1803 and and part of the constitution creating the state of Ohio, you know, there were still some people who wanted slavery. And you know, there's a town in um in uh, Washington County called Veto. There's another town called Constitution, and that's where Ephraim Cutler lived. And Ephraim Cutler was the son of Manasseh Cutler, and he got in, he was in the early Congress of Ohio, and he was in on the vote. And I'm not sure the details on this. There's been some some debate back and forth, but the town of Vito is supposedly named after the fact that Ephraim Cutler made his way over to Chillicothe in spite of some illness or whatever and cast the deciding vote that, that determined that Ohio would not be a slave state. I've heard other contradictions to that, that it wasn't that key of a role that he played, but it was he played a key role in the early organization of the state of Ohio and, and making sure that it, it was a free state. Um, so that's interesting. So they chose Athens. Now, I know that there's, you know, it's right next to a river. Was was the Hocking River navigable for trade? And I, I know that, you know, brick comes from Athens and they had coal. Is Am I correct in those? And is that why they chose the area, just yeah. because of the natural resources? Well, that early, nobody was talking really about coal. Nobody was talking about bricks. Um, but they were headed over into the Hocking, the Hawk Hocking Valley. And there are some stories, too, about, you know, just not far from where Athens is located today is a, another place called The Plains. And that's a big, flat sector of the county that um, some people say that was supposedly where they were headed. Again, you always get a couple different um, schools of thought on that. Others say that, no, they ended up right where they intended. And the town of Athens is on a bluff uh, overlooking the Hocking River. But, you know, the earliest settlers in, in here, the er earliest industries in Ohio were salt and um, fur. 
and 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 people came in following the the existing transportation routes that was mostly waterways the hawking was not as navigable people did come somewhat upstream when the water was high enough but then of course you were fighting uh the downstream currents they would have to pull flat boats up and i'm not sure how far up the river they ever really got doing that but they could transport things downriver. They found a barge buried in the sediments of the Hocking Valley uh, around the town of Stewart, which is about, I don't know, maybe 10 or 12 miles from Athens uh, back in the 1980s. And this was a, an old flat boat put together with, uh, or a barge put together with mortise and tenon joints and wooden pegs. And it had a good two, if I recall, 12 feet of silt on top of it. And there are stories about launching a ship called the Enterprise uh, that left the Stewart area and went down to um, New Orleans. And it was on the rivers in 1811 during the New Madrid earthquake on the Mississippi. But those early, uh, early industries, salt and, and um, fur, and then farming. Basically, they started out as farmers and, and they didn't pick the best part of the state of Ohio for um, agriculture, but, you know, there were rich soils here because nobody had ever depleted them. And so wherever they could clear, clear the, you know, the landscape, they could, they could grow things. Um, and it wasn't until a good number of years later that, that coal, see, one of the early industries after that, uh, after settlement was iron. And that wasn't necessarily in Athens County, but it was just west of here in uh, Benton County and, and Jackson County and Gallia County. And they, they quarried a lot of iron ore and they cut a lot of timber down here to make charcoal. And, and then they used that, that steel to help build the war effort this, for, the, for the Civil War. Over in Jackson County, they, there's a town called Oak Hill and they have a historic marker over there claiming that they quarried the ore that was used in the manufacture of the monitor in the Civil oh. War. That's the old monitor. Yeah. Uh, the monitor the Merrimack Mac fam. Yeah. And it yeah. was the one called the cheese box on a raft. And, you know, that's significant. So iron preceded the coal. And so they did start uh, getting coal around that time, too. And then they built a lot of Coke ovens down in this part of the state to convert the coal to Coke. Um, What's that exactly? And, and, and before we get into the, that, I had a question on the salt. Was What were they mining the salt? What was it used for? Um, I mean, it's not table salt if they're mining that much. What what was salt used for? Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> they probably weren't putting it in salt shakers, but salt was a, a couple of things. One is everybody wanted salt. And there were salt licks here and salt wells and where, where salt water would seep up to the surface of the landscape and then spread out into the floodplains there and then it would evaporate and leave cakes of salt. And so these areas were identified early on by, by wildlife. I mean, um, bison were interested in this and elk and, and pretty much any kind of wildlife, but Native Americans needed it and they used it for food preservation and also for, um, you know, in preparing their food to, you know, help improve yeah. the taste of certain things. And so pioneers had the same interest in that kind of thing. Matter of fact, when they divvied up the state of Ohio with the Ohio company purchase and the 
you know, the Congress lands and the uh, Kinetic Western Reserve, they actually had identified some salt reservations, and those were segregated. Those were areas that nobody could buy and own and then ended up with a monopoly of it. So the salt was critical. And salt was uh, so valuable because everybody wanted it. Salt was so valuable that they used it for bartering and trade. And so therefore, it was, it was sort of like money. And it is the base, the root word of terms like salary. When you go to work, you earn a salary. Salary comes from salt. And you've heard lines like, well, that guy, he just ain't worth his salt. Or if he's really bad, he ain't worth a grain of salt. And that all comes from the fact that salt was that valuable once upon a time. Now, of course, they've got salt mines underneath Lake Erie and other places, and, and salt has been rendered. It's still invaluable. I mean, nobody wants to do without it, but it's very abundant. Oh, that's interesting. I, I, I guess the food preservations, and I, I just took for granted, I thought salt was more readily available, I guess. Now, uh, before you were talking about coal, and then they went into Coke ovens, and everyone wanted Coke. I'm not sure what that is. Well, uh, charcoal is what they use to stoke these iron furnaces first. And charcoal is when you you build these large piles of, you cut down trees and you cut up the wood and then you make these large piles of wood and then you start it on fire and you cover it with dirt and it smolders and it burns with a lack of oxygen and it turns the wood into charcoal. And then when you put the charcoal in the furnace, you can get much higher temperatures by burning the previously partially burned wood as charcoal. And so, and then Coke is when they do the same thing with coal. And so they would turn the coal, they would partially burn that with, uh, you know, low oxygen accessibility to it, and it would convert it to Coke. And then again, you could get considerably higher temperatures by burning the Coke in those furnaces rather than coal. Yeah, interesting. Uh, a lot of history there. A little bit back to the salt. You know, they they um, they drilled wells down here and they pumped salt out. And I'm not quite sure how they did that, but then they would boil it. You know, the first graduate of Ohio University was a fellow named Thomas Ewing. Um, he was born in West Virginia, but he ended up getting raised in Athens County, just outside of um, Athens in a small village called Amesville, where they created the first one of the first libraries in the Ohio uh, history, the Coonskin Library by collecting um, furs. And then a couple of the guys from that community hauled these furs back east and came back with, I don't know, 50 or 75 books, which was the first library in this area. There was an earlier one in Belfry down on the Ohio River. But Thomas Ewing, he, uh, he got into this. He was, he's known as the old salt boiler. And uh, but he was the first graduate of Ohio University, and he went on to become a U.S. Senator and um, Secretary of the Treasury and the first Secretary of the Interior in the history of the United States. But he was the old salt boiler. And he, he eventually moved up to Lancaster, up the Hocking River, the Hawk Hocking, and a fella on his, on his block died, and he had a bunch of kids, and that fella's name was Sherman. And so Thomas Ewing adopted one of those ch children uh, named uh, Tecumseh Sherman. And his wife, being a strong Christian, wouldn't allow a, 
a kid to be raised in her house with a heathen name, so as I, as I understand it, and so he uh, took the name William Tecumseh Sherman. He went on to become, of course, the noted one of the noted generals in the Civil War. And and Thomas Ewing had, I think, three other sons who were also generals in the Civil War. So the Ewing family, first graduate of Ohio University, he didn't play a small role in Ohio history. No, see, OU doesn't mess around, that's for sure. Now we go from, um, you know, salt, coal, and, and I guess I wasn't thinking when I mentioned uh, the bricks at, in the 17, early 1800s, but how did that, the brick, well, I guess first back to the coal, I mean, Athens was a coal mining town, is that correct? I know, I think the Union Bar used to be a hotel where the coal miners would stop at the train station and, and walk up the hill, is, is my history serving me correctly? Well, the Union Bar was a was the Elks Hotel. I don't know much about their clientele. Athens was was Athens had some some industry in the uh, you know in the late 1900s. It, it did have brick manufacturing. It had some other industry. There was some coal mining outside of Athens. Nelsonville was a big part of the coal history. So were many of the little towns. Um, in Athens County, like Chansey and, and Millfield and Trimble and Jacksonville and Gloucester. And then the towns up in Perry County of Corning and Shawnee and New Straitsville and Renville and Hemlock. And there's, it's, it, and they're known as the Hocking Valley coal fields. I wouldn't say that Athens was uninvolved in that, but it wouldn't, it wasn't one of the main centers. It was, I think it was basically in, relying somewhat on the edu educational facility and some other manufacturing. I think they made about everything down here. Um, cause, cause when you settle a community, you needed somebody to make your shoes. You needed somebody to make saddles and harnesses and agricultural items and, you know, tools and things like that. So, uh, but Athens was a small town. Nelsonville was the one that was the big town. Nelsonville was a boom town. And then in the 1840s, around 1840, uh, see, in Ohio, they started building the canal system in 1825. And once they got it open, then people in Lancaster wanted, they got missed by the Ohio Erie Canal. It came down from Cleveland to, on Lake Erie all the way down to Portsmouth on the Ohio River. But it, it missed Lancaster by, oh, I don't know, half a dozen or a dozen miles. And so a group of businessmen in Lancaster organized what was called the Lancaster, Lancaster Lateral Canal Commission. And they extended the canal to Lancaster. And about when they got that done, the state of Ohio decided to extend it all the way down to Athens. Typically, when they ran along rivers, they would go the full length. For some reason, they did, chose not to follow the Hocking River all the way to the Ohio. So it stopped in Athens. Um, on around where West Union Street is today behind the old train depot and there was a large basin there with a lot of industry around it I remember one of the industries was uh, rags they were collecting and, and, and bailing and shipping rags and, and paper and things like that even back in the you know 1840s and 50s and 60s they were recovering and reusing materials and furs of course they would bail them up and ship them on the canals 
Well, I would think the ha- Hawking seems like a perfect canal river. You know, it's not. Uh, uh, it just seems like when you think of canals, that that seems like the right the right spot. Well, it's interesting. The Hawking presented some challenges because as they started following the Hawking River down from Lancaster toward Logan and, and Nelsonville and Athens, it's it's on one side of the river and they're digging a canal and building a towpath and building locks, et cetera, on one side of the river. But then eventually the river swings over in that direction and starts cutting at the base of a hill. Well, it squeezes out any space on that side of the river to have a canal. And so they had to build a lock which would put the, the boat out onto the river. And sometimes they just built the towpath along the river and the boat would just continue down the river. They had to build a dam to create some slack water on the, on the river. And it would either continue down river on the same side or in, in a number of cases, the Hawking Canal crossed the river. And then the canal picked up with the towpath on the opposite side of the river. So. Athens or the uh, Hawking Valley Canal had some challenges because of the winding river in the hills. Whereas you don't have that kind of a problem with a big valley like the Scioto River. Once they got, and they did cross that one, they crossed the Scioto River with the, with the Ohio Canal at Circleville. But as soon as they crossed it, they just followed it straight on down to the Ohio River. It was, I guess, easier to build it on that side. There were a lot of aqueducts built in the state of Ohio where boats were lifted up, put onto these aqueducts, and they crossed a river or a stream. Yeah, that's interesting. Now, we talked a little bit about bricks. What what do you think brought that industry to Athens? And I guess the pop, it was popularized with the university, and a lot of play, people who probably came to school maybe didn't live in a town that was, you know, had brick streets and, the, you know, the Athens block. Do you know much about how that came about? Well, this area of the state... <laughs> It's got a lot of coal, and associated with that coal is a lot of uh, clay sediments. And so Southeast Ohio is basically underlain by a sea of clay in, in a large sector of it. And uh, they started firing bricks early on. There are some really early, I mean, Cutler Hall on the Ohio University campus is the oldest building on campus, and it was built in 1816. That's pretty early, and it's brick. So, you know, the clay was quarried and, and the bricks were fired. But a lot of times in, in those days, they were fired for the very building that they were building. And that was it. Toward the uh, latter part of the 1900s, they were starting to make paver bricks. And that's a somewhat different kind of a brick than a building brick, a building block. And so <laughs> they made these paver bricks and started paving the streets the, starting out, I believe, with the downtown streets, but then eventually neighborhoods. And then they started connecting towns uh, with each other with paved brick roads. So So would would Athens and and Nelson be connected by brick at one time? At one time, yeah, sure. Matter of fact, fact, Route 33, Old 33, extended on down to the Ohio River and went all the way up to Lake Erie somewhere. It, it, I should say, it, it went all the way up to Fort Wayne, Indiana and beyond, but it was mostly brick at one point in time. You can still, if you know where to go, if you know where old Route 33 is, there are still areas of the old two-lane that you can find, and some of them are not paved over with asphalt. You can just see the brick. It's right there, flat and straight as the day they built it. And there are other areas that 
the brick is is still there, but it's it's been paved over with asphalt. And when you get potholes and stuff in the asphalt, you see the brick underneath it. But it was brick from from Middleport, well past Columbus. Middleport's on the Ohio River. Middleport made bricks. Athens made bricks. Nelsonville made bricks. Logan made bricks. Gloucester, Trimble. There were some, Marietta made bricks. There were so many brick plants in Southeast Ohio. And a lot of the bricks that were made down here paved streets well beyond Southeast Ohio. You can go to Columbus, Ohio and find streets paved with bricks made down in this part of the state. I have seen Athens block and Nelsonville block up in um, Kalamazoo, Michigan. So they made them and shipped them. I had no idea. That's that's very interesting. That's not easy work. I mean, making roads, no, number one. No, man, laying brick for hundreds of miles is certainly a lot. Now, uh, we don't have a lot of time left, but I do want to ask about the university. Um, in your experience, what are some of the, the more interesting facts? I mean, certainly the, the, the first graduate made his mark in our country. Uh, when you look back at the history of OU, what comes to mind is, is really most fascinating or maybe most relevant? Oh, well, it's a few things. One of the early presidents of Ohio University was William Holmes McGuffey. And while he was here, and he wasn't here long, and I, I'm not sure what decisions he made that I, I think at some point he found himself less welcome than than one would think. But while he was here, he had a lot of elm trees set out on what's called the College Green. See, you have to remember that uh, Ohio University was was created by these folks from Boston. They, they hatched their plan. Uh, Manasseh Cutler and his folks, they made their plan to, to create this American Western University in the Bunch of Grapes Tavern in Boston. And that's an interesting thing right there. This big idea, which is a great one, uh, came out, uh, made up over a couple tankards of uh, ale and some wine, maybe. But anyway, uh, Boston, one of the big open pieces of ground in Boston is the, the well-known uh, Boston Commons. And so when they set up Ohio University, it had the large commons out in front of it. And houses were built all the way around it. And a couple of uh, university buildings were built on the back end of it. And so that commons uh, has now come to be known as the College Green. And uh, it's had an interesting history over its time. You know, it, since it was a commons, just like in Boston in the early days, people used it to graze their sheep and their cows on it. And at some point, you know, university folks thought, well, that was just not what we have in mind anymore for that space. And so there got to be a bit of a tug of war between the university and the community over the uh, ownership and control of the, the commons. Um, and apparently the university ended up with the um, control of that space. And there's a monument built on it after the Civil War. After World War II, they built Quonset huts on there to accommodate soldiers coming back from World War II that wanted to go to school with the GI Bill. Those are some interesting things. When uh, when the first railroad was coming through town here from Marietta, it was headed to Cincinnati and it planned, the, the designers planned to bring it right smack through town. And it was gonna go underneath one of the, the graveyard on the West State Street and a group of sisters, the Courier sisters that lived uh, right off of the main street here, Court Street, 
they stopped it. They wrapped themselves in the American flag and protested it. And, you know, the, the guard or whatever uh, law enforcement group we had, you know, came in to break that up. But eventually they caused the railroad to take what's called the shoe fly and they went around town. And that's where it went around the, the base of the hill along the river and it crossed right through campus. The campus wasn't down there at the time, but eventually in, by the 1960s, when the campus expanded into the floodplain down there, there were a lot of dormitories built on the east side of the railroad and a lot of students on their way to class would get stopped by a train and they might have to wait for 100 car loads of coal to go by or some kind of chemicals coming out of the Ohio Valley. And, Funny you mentioned that because uh, Roz and I were talking on our last pat- podcast. Someone mentioned the train and like uh, they were in school in the 70s. And like, we remember train tracks. And I remember a train cart car being on it, but I don't ever remember it, it, it moving. And we were there uh, in the late 80s. So uh, maybe yeah. we just don't remember. It, it was still running through town uh, and across the campus, I think as late as 1984 or thereabouts. And then they shut it down and they, it was amazing how quick they pulled up the, the rails and the ties and the stone and started building on the old railroad right away. And probably the day will come when, when we rue that idea because mass transit still has a role in the world and just because America has, you know, not embraced it after, after we invented it and developed it, uh, the day will come when we'll, we'll want it. And, uh, we don't have that right away anymore. Same with the old canal. That land was let to revert back to adjacent landowners in sometime in the last 25, 30 years. And, you know, it was nice, you know, the public paid to get it and had it for a long time. And uh, it's valuable land and they'll never get it back quite the way they had it. I think you're right about the uh, the mass transit because you look all over the rest of the world. It certainly works well. Now you mentioned in um, you know Boston when they were sitting at the bunch of grapes tavern drinking some tankards of beer and uh, and drinking wine. I can tell you times have changed because when that happens to me, I come up with some of my worst ideas, and <laughs> they had some good ones. <laughs> so um, yeah. hey, well, as we close out, we always like to ask, and and, and Tom, thanks so much, and I'd love to have you back on because there's so much more history of Ohio University. We kind of laid the foundation of the area, and we'd like to maybe next time talk a little bit more about OU centric. But we always ask what you like most about Athens. You know, we feel this is Athens becomes a part of you, even though people only spend maybe four to seven years there at school. Um, And it just uh, it's got this certain magic to it. What do you like most about the area? The hills and the trees, Um, the the natural heritage of this area is, uh, I think, tops in Ohio. And because of the hills, it's. It, it made this part, even though it was the first part of Ohio settled, it's becoming the last part of Ohio that's overdeveloped. You know, bringing the four lanes through here, they're here, they're here now, but they weren't, they weren't completed here uh, 25 years ago. And so, you know, they, we don't have quite the sprawling development that a lot of places have. And all of Ohio was extremely beautiful at one point. And a lot of it's, you know, been covered up with sprawl, you know, and now these big box um, factories and, and um, 
I don't know what they are. A lot of times you just see a, a big old box building and might cover six or seven acres of ground and it's got some acronym for a name. You don't know what they do there, but you know, a lot, a lot disappears under those things. And some of that's coming here, but it's coming a little slower because, you know, we don't have all the flat ground. And if it is flat, it's in the floodplain and you're risking a lot to, to build in the floodplain. So I, I like, I like the hills. I'm not from here, but I've been here 40 years and, and, uh, I'm, I'm glad of the hills. Yeah. <laughs> and that, that makes I'm perfect opposed sense. To development or jobs or anything like that. They're all critical for successful, sustainable communities, but, um, yeah, I think people just don't like the progress on, on their watch, as you say. Uh, I did see, you know, even when I went to school there and going out State Street, it seems that place is all developed and it keeps going out State Street, which is good because it's not really encroaching on the town. And as long as I think we can keep Athens town, the history there, I think that's a, at least a start. If we're going to sprawl, you know, make it one corridor that goes away from the city, I think is a good idea. That is that is the floodplain, and so it has to be filled. And whenever you fill the floodplain to develop it, you're displacing water onto somebody else. And those are issues that need to be worked out and struggled with over time. But um, yeah, it's uh, it's it's a never-ending, you know, tug of war between you know preservation of our our heritage and progress. You brought up the word progress, and a lot of development. Some of it's progress, some of it's just change. I look the word progress up. It says it's a movement to a higher and better state. <laughs> so it's a qualified thing. Yeah, I guess it's just a reinvention of, of something else. And what's, you know, it's just kind of a redo. We, we end up repeating ourselves so much when it comes up. Oh, I, I failed to mention too. Tell me a little bit about the, um, the Southeastern Ohio Historical Society, because uh, you've been a part of that, former executive director, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, work there currently full-time uh, a little bit about their mission and their plight well the southeast ohio history center we were the athens county historical society museum for 35 years or so um and then we were looking for more space because of the number of artifacts and books and things that we ended up with and right around the corner from our exist where we were on the main street in athens the court street uh a building up the alley, a church building came up for sale and there were groups interested in buying it and demolishing it to make student housing. And there were other, another group interested in gutting it for student housing. So the board of directors made the bold and courageous move to purchase it and turn it into a history center. And in the process of trying to find money, especially from the state of Ohio, because of the politics, Ohio being currently, um, strongly in the what you would say the red sector with the governor and the house of representatives and the state senate and then athens ohio and athens county being a sort of a little blue island in a sea of red politically down here we were told well you'd be better off if you represented a larger region than just athens because nobody in the state house is going to stay up late trying to make athens look good so then we started thinking about it and we started discussing the issue. And, and at one point, this was all Washington County in, in early Ohio history. Washington County went from the Ohio River all the way to the Scioto River and two thirds of the way up to Lake Erie. It was huge. 
And then when, when Ohio was formed, all of Southeast Ohio was made up of Fairfield, Washington, Ross, and Gallia County. Athens County didn't even exist when Ohio became a state in 1803. And so in 1805, Athens, was, Athens County was created and it was huge. And then in subsequent years, it was divvied up to help make Hawking, Perry, Morgan, Meggs, uh, Lawrence, Jackson, and, and eventually Vinton County. And we all have this common heritage. If you died in, in Athens in, say, 1795, well, that would have been Washington County. And you might have to look for your heritage records over in Washington County Genealogical Library. And so we have this common heritage, and we all have a common need to work together to, to, um, to survive down here. This is Appalachian, Ohio. There's not lots of industry and, and, and big money down here. So our goal is to reach out to our neighbors and, and collaboratively work and become a louder voice for historic preservation. You know, in a, in a time of approaching global climate change, you know, you see a lot of people trying to do things that are sustainable. Well, if saving bottles and cans and papers through recycling is an important thing, saving buildings is more important. So historic preservation, we claim, is, is sustainability on steroids. And so our mission is to promote the natural and cultural heritage of our region and work with our neighbors to be a voice for that. You're doing a great job. And I think with someone like yourself working there, uh, the future's bright. And I want to thank you for being on the, the show today. And I look forward to having you back and learning more about OU history. Okay, Tim. Thank you. Good talking well, to you. Yeah, thanks so much.